just wanted to pray for you for that. So uh, take your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 5. We've been in uh, the book of Acts, kind of looking at different things and kind of making our way through there, seeing and pulling out some principles for us and how we live this life. If the church was unleashed thousands of years ago to kind of be this movement of Jesus and his hope and his grace in the world, how do we kind of tap into that? How do we kind of unleash our life, so to speak, if you will? Uh, How do we begin to take next steps in what that is? Because this movement of Jesus is an incredible movement. In fact, it's an unstoppable movement. It's something that's been transpiring and unfolding century after century, even with its own setbacks from within. Even if it's its own wrongdoings from within, it still has this movement that continues to go forward. This movement, this story, if you will, the story of the gospel is an unstoppable story. No matter how many times it's tried to be squashed out and kind of, you know, had the, the wick and the candle of it just kind of blown out, it's, it's just never really gone out. And it just continues to unfold and continues to light the way. And we've seen these opposition moments that have come up in the early church. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about Peter and John. They kind of called before the principal's office. We talked about this council that they had to go before. And tonight in this text that we're going to look at, you're going to see that again. And not just Peter and John but actually all 12 of the apostles get called into this moment that's before the Sanhedrin there. And the Sanhedrin, it would be like in our, uh, the best way to kind of understand it would be if you were to take the Supreme Court power and just this, this understanding of everything that is to go about with that and also this, this struggle and this, this extreme power that they had and to stand before those group of people, that's where you would be. And that's where we find out what's happening. And so just, if you're looking there, verse 16, let's start with that. Chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem. So we've been reading about the story of Jerusalem. All these disciples are in, in the town of Jerusalem, but it's actually expanding outside of that now. Other people from other towns are beginning to follow and begin to come through here. They're bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So lots of healing, lots of movement, God, God activity going on here. And then verse 17 happens. Then the high priest and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees. Remember, we remember, remember the old churchy term here? Sadducees, they're sad, you see. Because they don't believe in divine beings like angels, and they don't believe in the resurrection, okay? So they're sad, you see? Okay, so they're sad, you see. They're filled with jealousy because this movement of Jesus is just transpiring and it's picking up momentum, and people's lives are changing, and their system, the way they've lived, is kind of falling apart, and it's falling behind, and they don't understand it. They're jealous of everything that's happening, so they arrest the apostles, and they put them in a public jail. I don't know if you've ever spent time in jail. Don't raise your hand. We don't need to know. But they're in this public jail. It's like the Sadducees and the leaders, the spiritual leaders of that moment at that time are wanting to hit the stop button on this movement of Jesus. They're wanting to hit the stop button. And I don't know, you know, sometimes that's actually a good thing. The stop button can be a good thing. Anyone ever had something in the dryer, you know, like the moment you remember, you go, oh, my lipstick, not mine in particular, but uh, my lipstick is in there and I've got to get that out. And so maybe you go hit the stop button on the dryer and you get that out before it ruins everything. Or maybe you've been, how many of you been on a, like an amusement park ride where they've had to hit stop and you were stuck on it and you had to walk off and you're kind of like, wow, they have little stairs here. I didn't notice that before. 
Anyone ever been on that? I've never had that experience, but there's been that. Anyone ever been to the gas station and you've seen the emergency stop button? Have you seen it? It's over by the wall usually on the side of the building where you can hit the emergency red stop button and it's supposed to stop all the gasoline from flowing. Anyone besides me ever been tempted to push that button? (laughs) Okay, good. I've never done it, but I've always kind of walked by and gone, man, what if? And then you kind of look for a little kid that's walking by at the same time. You're like, if I time this right. No, just don't do it. Um, But we all have stop buttons, and sometimes stop buttons are a good thing. Anyone ever been, uh, how many of you are teachers? Some of you are teachers. You have an automatic stop button in class when things get too crazy. It's called what? Pop quiz, right? (laughs) Things are going nuts, and things are going crazy. You've got a stop button. You can hit, and you say, hey, pop quiz, and everyone's got to do that. How many of you ever remember taking a pop quiz? Yeah, now you know. Uh, That was your teacher's stop button. Parents, you have a stop button. It's called the stare. Some of you are really good at it. Some of you are doing it right now. Stop, okay? Look, I'm not in trouble. Um, The stop button, sometimes in different things. Uh, In fact, I remember as a kid, um, my parents driving my brother Alan and I home and um, if you have kids, you understand this situation sometimes. Sometimes kids kind of push you too far. And I remember my parents kind of looking over the back seat, and that's before seat belts and all that kind of stuff, and they could get back there, and they hit the brake sometimes and kind of get you as you went flying forward. Um, and because you're like, hey, knock it off, okay? And so I remember we, we kind of pushed a little bit too far, and I remember my, my dad kind of pulling over to the side of the road and said, uh, get out. And I was like, what? Uh, uh, what? And we were about a half a mile from home, and uh, he said, get, get out. Uh, like, you're not kidding, are you? No, get out. So my brother and I had to get out of the car. We walked the last half a mile home just because I think we were making uh, too much noise and, and kind of being annoying with that. So we tried something different. We tried to stop off at a friend's house, and we had our friend call and pretend to be the police. That didn't work um, <coughs> at all. Like, I thought it was going to go over in my mind, so we just we didn't play that game anymore. Um, but... You know, sometimes parents have a, have a stop button, and, and stop buttons are a good thing in life, and sometimes we try stop buttons as a culture, so to speak, on different movements. You've seen that happen back in the, the 50s and 60s with the civil rights movement. People trying to hit the stop button and say, no, 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 we're not going to go through this. We're not going to make the change that we really need to make. And some people try to put a stop to it, but yet it's unstoppable in that moment, and it's a good thing that was unstoppable. And so you see different things play out in culture, and here's these Sadducees, these spiritual leaders, trying to hit the stop button on this movement of Jesus. And so they throw them in jail. It's interesting. It's not like a celebrity jail where you can just kind of walk around and wander wherever you want. It's a public jail. It's where people would have seen, would have known. They're behind locked doors, They're there, and then this incredible, crazy thing happens. God shows up in the middle of this. In fact, you can read the rest of the story and begin to see some things that are unfolding. I won't have time to read through the whole thing, but they're in jail. Could you imagine being the early disciples, these early apostles, and you're kind of just, you're doing your thing. You're, You're talking about Jesus, and you're doing what he's asked you to do, and all of a sudden you wind up in jail, and how weird that would be. And you're there, and maybe you're feeling like God forgot you and is forgetting about what's going on because you know what's awaiting you. And you're going to go stand in front of the most powerful group of people that you know. These are the same people that killed your leader, that put Jesus on the cross. 
and you're going to go stand in front of them. Last time you felt this opposition, you, you scrammed, you ran, you, you scattered. And now you're in jail, you're waiting for this. Can you imagine maybe what they're feeling, what they're sensing? God, have you forgotten us? And God sends this messenger, he sends this angel that in the middle of the night shows up, unlocks the jail cell, says, hey, you, you come with me. They, the angel escorts them out and he says, tomorrow morning you go back to the temple and you keep telling people about Jesus and telling the whole story about this idea of life with God is available now through Jesus. You keep telling that story. So these prisoners, these apostles, they are let out of jail. None of the guards notice. None of the jail cells are actually unlocked. They're unlocked for a moment. They get out. They are, I guess, locked again. It's kind of the supernatural moment that happens, which is really fascinating because the Sadducees, remember they're Sadducee, don't believe in this kind of stuff, and yet this is what's happening to free them. And I just find that really ironic that God seems to do that. Um, and so he shows up and says, hey, let's free these people. Let's let them go. You keep doing what you're doing. Can you imagine how encouraging that would be to these disciples? God, I thought you forgot about me, yet you're freeing me. Your encouragement showed up in just the right moment, and your encouragement is necessary to keep me, to keep on keeping on that I'm going to keep on keeping on, that it's this notion that I'm just going to keep doing what you've called me to do and what you've asked me to do. These uncertain conditions will be a part of your spiritual journey. Uncertain conditions will be a part of my spiritual journey, all of ours. And in the midst of these uncertain conditions, God's saying, look, my encouragement will show up, but you're certain of that. It will show up in these moments right when you need it. And it will show up in ways that maybe you can't put your arms around, but you begin to see it. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever sensed that in your life? That maybe you're going through your life and you're feeling like you're just on this, this treadmill, you're running uphill, things are just struggling for you, and, and it doesn't sense that sometimes God has this way of just bringing some personalized encouragement alongside you at just the right moment. Have you ever felt that? You ever sensed that? You ever noticed that? You ever been aware of that? I was emailing with someone uh, this week, and they said, my, my husband's been looking for this job, and he's been out of work for a while, and he's got this interview. Would you just pray? And so I say, hey, we'll pray, and we'll see what God's up to. And he's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. And she emails me back a day later and says, he got the job. This has been such a long journey for them. And in just this week, as a few people gather around to pray, God answers it. And it's like this encouragement at just the right moment. See, Uncertainty will be a part of our life, but you can be certain that God's encouragement will also be surprising you in certain moments and coming alongside you to help you. And that's what God begins to do for these early followers. He says, look, I know, I know the challenge you're up against, but I'm going to send an angel to encourage you. And so he gets them out of jail. They, the next morning, they're back in the temple. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the resurrection. The next morning, the Senate, kind of these, the Sanhedrin, this council pulls together. They show up and they say, got all these powerful people there and they send for the prisoners. So the guard goes to get the prisoners who goes to the jail behind the locked doors, behind the guards that were there. The problem is there's no prisoners. Don't you think that would be a problem? So they see that as a problem because they're like, hey, didn't we put 12 people in here? Where are they? And then so some, maybe some kid, I don't know, someone comes running into the council and says, hey, remember those guys you put in public jail because we all kind of knew about it because it's public? They're actually back at the temple 
talking about that guy Jesus again. They're like, oh, that's odd. Um, and so they send a, a kind of detachment, a group of people to bring them back, but this time they don't handcuff them. This time they're kind of asking nicely, would you come back with us to the council because you're really not supposed to be out here. We're not sure how you get out here. But uh, we don't want to make a ruckus because we think the people will actually kind of kill us uh, if we kind of make a big scene about this. So would you make your way back to the council? So now the disciples make their way back to this council, maybe with a little bit more encouragement that God has actually dialed into their life and that the moment they're about to face, they don't face alone. And it's interesting, the conversation that begins to take place. So now they're back standing before this council, this Sanhedrin. These are the powerful people that put Jesus to death. And here's these 12 standing there. And let's just kind of pick up the conversation here. Verse uh, 28. Having brought the apostles, made them appear before the Sanhedrin, and they begin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, of speaking of Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus Christ from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. But God exalted him in his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, you had this plan, but what we're here to tell you is the plan changed. You had this concept, this idea, and we, we friends, we're going to obey God more than man. They make this declaration in this moment that says we will proclaim our priorities. And you want to know what our priorities is? We put God first. Above any man-made system, above any structure, any culture that you say that we should live by, we will choose to trust and obey God in his way instead of putting our trust in, cho in our, our choices in the systems and the opportunities that man says this is the way things should be. We're choosing to pick God, and we're going to follow him. And friends, that begs the question for us. Where's your priorities? Because there will always be this tension, friends, between will I choose to follow God in his way and the way that he kind of says this is the, the best possible way to live life is to follow me and to, to kind of chase after me in the ways that I talk about living life, that you aim your life that way, or we live in a culture that's really, let's be honest, is trying to pull us a different way. Drew? And it will always be this tension. This isn't a problem that's once solved. It's a tension that you always will have to manage. Who will I put my trust in? Who will I stand behind? Who will I aim my life at? Who will I prioritize as most important in having the most say and the most sway over my life? And the early followers of Jesus, as God began to encourage them, as God began to do incredible things in their midst, even in the midst of opposition, they said, we choose God. We're going to follow him. And the question for us is, in those moments that we face, we have a choice. It's a simple choice. Sometimes it's a challenging choice. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes it's not black and white. 
And it's this notion, will we choose to follow after God and to say his ways matter more than any cultural ways and pulls that we have here in this world? We have this calling put deep within as followers of Jesus to say, it's not about my comfort, it's not about my needs, it's about me living out of this high calling I have. And I wanna choose to follow after God. Peter uses these incredible words and begin to study this in Greek a little bit and begin to see that he uses this phrase, I think it's uh, verse uh, 31, God exalted him in his own right hand as prince. Ergagon is this meaning, this notion of saying as originator, as a leader, as pioneer, that he elevated him. He's the pioneer of the new way of life. And he didn't use that and say, okay, I'm the pioneer. You all come follow me. This pioneer actually said, I've come to serve. I'm here to be a savior and a rescuer of all mankind, any and all who look to me. I'm here to serve them. And to give his life is a ransom for many, one scripture writer says. That he didn't say, okay, I'm the originator, I'm the pioneer, you all come work your way up. This God said you're worth pursuing and you're worth rescuing. And so he came down to us and said, I'll be your rescuer, I'll be your savior. Can you imagine Peter standing before the Sanhedrin Think about this. Maybe you're here and you're uh, just checking out church. <laughs> I think it's awesome that you're here and you are welcome here. In fact, we want this to be a place where people can wrestle about their faith and begin to take steps in their faith and, and maybe even have doubts and have questions and have struggles. That's okay. I'm gonna tell you, here's this story in Acts chapter five, I think is one of the greatest, um, greatest points of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Here's why. This same group of men, a few weeks earlier, weren't standing before this Sanhedrin and this council, were on the outskirts listening into this Sanhedrin and into this council, and were hearing them put accusations against Jesus, their leader. And you know where they all went? They didn't hang around long enough to hear the whole trial. They took off running, and they fled, and they scattered, and they hid throughout Jerusalem. They became cowards in that moment. Where? Just ask yourself the question, especially if you're kind of even investigating faith. Where in the world do cowards go to courageous men like this in a matter of weeks? Did they drink Red Bull? You know, did, did, they, did they take a new diet pill? Did, did, did something happen? And did they go to the Zig Ziglar motivational speech class or something? Did they, did, did they do what? Or did they truly see a dead guy come back to life and interact with them and say, I am the savior of the world and I will empower you as you are my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to the ends of the earth. I can't explain it any other way. There's no other reason that these men who were cowards at one point, just weeks earlier, who fled out of any of the minimalist opposition and struggle, are now standing before the people that killed Jesus, and Peter is laying out the gospel to them, saying that this invitation of Jesus and following him is actually even for you. 
Do you want it? That's what Jesus is saying, and that's what Peter is saying in this moment, is that Jesus actually is a prince and a rescuer, a savior for even you in this moment. He's laying out the gospel, inviting them to this unstoppable story, which is fascinating because the very next sentence says that the council became so furious they wanted to kill them. And in that moment, they wanted to kill them. In fact, you can read it. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So this isn't going too well. They've, they, Peter and the apostles have said, hey, here's, here's the deal. Jesus is actually the savior of the world and you can experience life with God through him. They don't like that because that's messing with their system. They want to put him to death. And then one wise Pharisee stands up, Gamaliel, uh, and Gamaliel it kind of begins to, to kind of put out this different uh, scenario in front of them. In fact, he calls kind of a, we'll call it a timeout. He calls this timeout in the council and says, why don't you put the disciples outside? And I love timeout. Anyone ever been in timeout before? Timeout's awesome sometimes for about the first 30 seconds. Because uh, then you get kind of lonely and you're like, man, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Uh, or maybe you think of a sports team. Someone calls a timeout or just if it's baseball, just the manager walks out to the pitcher's mound. And there is no time limit to that. I, I've never understood that. They can stand out there and talk about everything all day until the umpire finally says, no, let's, let's continue the game. But that's beside the point. Uh, but there's this timeout call. They're put outside of this council meeting. And Gamaliel just kind of begins to say, look, there's these oppositions that have come up before. And here's what's happened. There's been this one guy that kind of raised up and said, let's revolt against Rome. And like 400 people went after him. And then he died. And the whole movement fell apart. And then there was this other guy that kind of roused people up and they started to try to do this revolt and then he died and the whole thing fell apart. My dad um, used to collect things. How many of you collect things, different things? Uh, maybe you collect different mugs, maybe uh, Disneyland pins, maybe you collect, I don't know, stamps, coins, whatever different thing that you collect, baseballs, you know, baseball cards I used to collect when I was a kid. And my dad used to have this strange collection. He used to collect rattlesnakes which was always weird uh, when you come home and you see a rattlesnake in the freezer. Uh, that was never fun. Uh, but we used to go hunting for rattlesnakes because my dad uh, would love to catch these things. Then he'd skin them, and then he'd make different things out of them. And you know how you catch a rattlesnake? Very carefully. Um, but how you catch a rattlesnake is you've got to chop off the head. And once you chop off the head, well, then this snake is dead, right? And that's kind of the philosophy that they're saying in this moment is, hey, look, you, you chop off the head of the movement and the whole thing is going to fall apart. The whole thing is going to die out because man-made movements have a shelf life to them. They're not this unstoppable movement. You just you take out the leader and then all of a sudden, and then I love when he begins to, to go forward and says, here's uh, verse 38. Here's what Gamaliel says. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. If this is just a movement that's kind of orchestrated by man, then it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, and you will only find yourself fighting against God. He has this incredible wisdom. Not even a believer. When he has this wisdom, he's not really believing in the movement. He's just saying, look, here's the reality of what we know. 
Movements come and movements go. But when the leader dies, things tend to, to kind of fall apart. Well, the problem is their leader died and the movement picked up steam because that leader came back to life. And what they didn't understand is you can quarantine one, but this movement isn't about one. It's, it's about the one, but it's not containable or unstoppable by controlling one because it's multi-splintered. It's everyone's a part of this movement. It's this movement of Jesus where God's grace and God's hope finds you and all of a sudden you're a part of it and you're in it. And that's what we've seen throughout history is that anywhere throughout the world, not America, because we've had it pretty safe, but anywhere throughout the world where the movement of Jesus has been tried to squash out, it actually just springs up somewhere else. And it begins to maybe put some hampering, some dampering on some different things, but it will continue. It's an unstoppable story because it's the true story. It's this movement Jesus said that ever since John the Baptist, this movement, this kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. Not forcefully in the sense of bowling people over, but rather winning people over. One heart at a time. This movement of God is unstoppable. That's the story of Acts. That's what you begin to see as opposition begins to come at these folks and nothing seems to squash it. It just keeps getting bigger. And we've seen that throughout history. See, persistent faith lives to progress the unstoppable story of God. And that, friends, is what we're called to live. Persistent faith. One faithful step at a time. That may be part of the best question to begin asking yourself in the everyday moments of your life is what's the most faithful thing for me to do in this situation, in this scenario, in this circumstance? What's the most faithful thing for me to do? Now, will you get that wrong sometimes? Yeah. Will you fall sometimes? Yeah. Will you fail sometimes? Yeah. Why? I've been there. I know that. You, you fall, but here's what you do. You get back up and you say, what's the most faithful thing for me to do? How do I live a persistent faith? How do I begin to pursue after this? That obedience in our culture has a tendency sometimes to be equated to this prosperity gospel. If I obey, then God will continually bless me. If I just obey, then everything is going to be rosy and perfect for me. Is that reality? No. Was that their reality? Okay, I'm just going to obey God. Where they wind up? Jail. I'm just going to obey God. Where they wind up? And standing in front of the most powerful people that could take their life. You know how the story ends here in Acts chapter 5? Is you can read the last part. They are, they are what's called, um, they are flogged, which is whipped in a way. That a prisoner literally would be put on their knees, their shirt would be removed, and they would be whipped uh, for the Jewish tradition was 39 times because sometimes if you hit 40 or 41, you, they actually died. And so they would take these leather um, straps, these three uh, long prong things, and they would whip them twice in the back, once in the front, 39 times. And that's what they went through. And these early apostles said, <laughs> God, I'm just trying to obey you. And here I am getting whipped. I don't understand. Because sometimes we, we equate obedience in our American culture to say, well, that means everything's gonna be perfect, everything's gonna be great. And the truth is that that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes obedience is followed by great blessing. Sometimes obedience is followed by inconvenience and struggle. 
But here's the truth. Obedience will always open the door to a deeper relationship with God. Obedience always opens that door to a deeper relationship with God. And what God says is, hey, deep within, your calling is to obey me. Your calling is to follow me. The, the spiritual journey is about continual next steps with God. And sometimes that's great next steps, and it's awesome, and things are great, and they're, they're super cool. And sometimes they're challenging. And sometimes they're a struggle, and sometimes they're inconvenient. In our culture, <clears throat> we don't face opposition like some of my friends overseas, do we? Let's just be honest about it. The only opposition we face is inconvenience. If we, we take a step of obedience, sometimes we get ridiculed, maybe, for our faith. Sometimes we may get laughed at a little bit for our faith, but we don't get killed for our faith. But that's what some of our friends, our brothers and sisters who are followers of Jesus around the world face. And so our opposition sometimes uh, is, is a totally different challenge. And see, in the early church, their opposition, they faced these things, these greatest dangers the apostles faced was this court in this moment. That was the opposition. The greatest danger we face in the church today is a consumerist complacency. That sometimes we can begin treating our faith as a consumer. That I go to church because it's about me and I go to the church that makes me feel good and I go to the church that I like that music or I go to the church where, you know, this is what they have for me and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that except when that becomes your priority and your choices are all based on that instead of saying, no, no, my, my choice is to, to obey God and to invest my life and to give my life away to serve because that's actually how Jesus modeled it. It wasn't about preferences and about desires, and, and it's not wrong to have those, but don't let those take an elevated spot of a priority over the calling we have to follow God and to be the church, not just attend a church. See, friends, the movement that we have that we're a part of, Element City Church, I'll just be real, I'll just be real. To go love the heart of our city, it's going to cost us. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be challenging. But friends, it is our calling. And we want to be a people that live out of that calling. Does that mean every road's going to be difficult? No. Does that mean some roads are going to be a lot of fun and a lot of just great joy and just filled with great pleasure? Yes, it will. But does that mean some of the roads that await us will be challenging at times? Yeah, yeah, it does. Does that mean we're all going to have to sacrifice some things? Yeah, yeah, it does. Does that mean we might be uncomfortable at times? Yeah, yeah, it does. That's the calling that we have in front of us. And, and as one of your pastors and one of your leaders here, I would say to you that that's worth it because that's the life Jesus modeled. That's the life that we see the early followers beginning to live and not everything was rosy and not everything was perfect and not everything was about their desires or their comfort level. And sometimes the church, friends, 
we get sideways in our, our carrying out our faith when we make it all about our comfort instead of our calling. That we are to live on mission. See, the church exists not for you. Did you hear me? The church doesn't exist for you. We get to benefit. But the church exists for people who aren't here yet. That's our calling, friends. That's why the disciples would say, hey, Jesus is this prince and the savior of the world for those who don't know him yet. And that's who we need to go love. Now, we get to love one another. We get to help and encourage one another along the way. We don't miss out on that. But it's not always just about us in this room. That's my encouragement to you. And I know that sounds challenging. And I know that may sound like, I don't know. But here's what I hope it kind of infuses within you and stirs up within you is that. That's bigger than me. I want to give my life to that. Because that's something that will outlive you. Friends, that's what I want to give my life to. To a movement of God that's an unstoppable story. That is a story that will long be unfolding after Jack Scholl is gone. Because that's a story worth pointing people to. It's a story worth giving your life to. And that's what those early disciples begin to say. Hey, it's this persistent faith of continual next steps with God, of pulling people forward. And they left that moment of, of opposition, that moment of, of being whipped and beat. They left with joy, the Bible says. They didn't leave with this resentment and this bitterness. They actually left with the joy and rejoicing that they were counted uh, to suffer a little bit for Jesus because Jesus modeled that. That's why Paul writes, I, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering." Because there is something with that in obeying, even in those difficult moments, that will always lead to a deeper, intimate relationship with God. And the truth is, you want that. Even if you don't want that. Even if it's a challenge to get that, there is a part of you that says, I, I want to know God better. And sometimes that comes through challenge. And so here's how I want to end tonight. I was thinking this week... Um, you know, the spiritual life is about continual next steps. And uh, I, I took some time yesterday, and I just, I wrote out a prayer for us. And I'd like to, to kind of pray that over us. And then uh, we're going to move on with worship, and we're just, we're creating some space. If you want to take communion, we, if you're new, we have that at different um, tables around the room. You are welcome to participate in that. We've got a couple songs. We'll sing worship together, and then we'll kind of move on with our night. But I want to invite you. Uh, just to let these words kind of wash over you, that you pray along with this, of saying, God, I want to be a person that's committed to you, sold out to you, and living the, the most persistent faith I know how. And when I fall down and when I fail, I get back up, and I take the right next step with you. And so as I pray and as I finish that, you feel free to take communion, engage in worship. We'll continue on with our night. But let me just kind of pray this over us, and you pray along with me. Father, I'm reminded again that your gospel is an unstoppable story of your grace and your hope. It's the most unstoppable story our world has ever known or ever will know. All other stories fade, but yours continues to shine. 
It continues to capture hearts, to bring freedom and to announce hope for the broken. May we be a community of your followers who live to persistently point people to you. May we love in ways that draw attention to you. May we be faithful in the moments that we find ourselves in. Empower us to be a faithful witness for you. Father, may you surprise us with your encouragement at just the right moments, individually and together as a church family. Surprise us. God, I pray for my friends tonight, each one here on a journey with you, maybe investigating you. May you meet us, surprise them with encouragement, uplift them, empower them to take next step toward you, next step alongside you. When they face opposition or challenge, may it stir a praising and rejoicing spirit, not resentment. Have your way in us, Father. Through us, be a blessing to those beside us. May we be a blessing to our city, to our families, to our friends, and to our world at large. Give us a focus to live on mission for you. May we not deviate, may we not get distracted by complacency or consumerist pull that our culture throws at us. Keep us focused. Stir us in the next few moments here as we worship you. You are faithful, you are powerful, you are close, you are engaged, you are dialed in, and you are unstoppable. So meet us tonight. May we leave here changed. We ask all of this in the power of your son's name. In the name of Jesus.